we are in Hebrews 13, and we are talking about basically the entire chapter again. Um, if any of you have had the opportunity to teach the Bible, this is just a lot of material for us to cover in one time. And so we are talking about the exhortation to service. Here we have seen the entire book of Hebrews. We have talked about the fact that Jesus is better than so many different things. We have talked about three different warnings, and now he is in his final chapter wrapping everything up, and this is his exhortation to service. So it's kind of like, hey, based upon everything we've read about, all this theology we've talked about, now here's how you're going to take that and be doers of all of that information. I will be honest, it is intimidating to me, like I prayed to land this plane um, in a place that gives it the full weight of glory of the passages that we've read and kind of justly does something kind of word I'm looking for um, to the passion that I feel like in my bones, right? Jeremiah talks about the passion that's in his bone and he's a, when he was a prophet and the, the weight that he carried of like God's word giving it to the people and I think when you're a teacher and when you have a shepherd's heart and you see the truth in here and you want it for your own life and you want it for your people, it's just a big weight to try to figure out how to land our study in Hebrews. For what we have encountered in this book hopefully has given us the opportunity to grow and has grounded us by the truths that we have encountered. I hope in the um, homework that you had for last week you had some opportunity to reflect, to summarize, and to think about what it is that has grounded you and what you need to continue to be a grounded person. So Hebrews 13, this chapter alone, is no different. In some ways, it's a wrap-up, and in some ways, he's like giving all new information. Um, verse 22 says, the author has written to us briefly. I have never had that thought as I have studied the book of Hebrews. Um, again, uh, we, could, we could talk about so much more in depth in the study of Hebrews. I really feel like chapter 13, Lisa and I were talking this week, and chapter 13, though not, neither of our moms did this when we went away to college, but we still feel like this. You know, it's like a mom to the child going, going away to college, or the mom going to, you know, the child going away to a sleepover for the first time, or maybe they're going to go work at camp, or whatever it is, and you're like, okay, remember, remember you have to put deodorant on every day, and remember you have to take a shower, and smile and say thank you, and it's like this whole rundown of like everything you've tried to parent, and you're just like verbally vomiting on it to them, and it's like totally scared, and you're like, oh, okay, 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 okay. I feel like in some ways that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He is, he or she, is downloading kind of in a time crunch their brain and their heart. And there is such a weight and an emotion and a burden that is not equal to the time that he takes to end this, chat, to end this book. I guess when I read through it, I kind of, these like sentences, oh, oh, I kind of imagine someone standing over their shoulder being like, all right, we got to go. We got to go deliver this letter. The train is leaving. There is no train. The camel was leaving, or whatever it may be, and the runner, the donkey, I have no idea, was, what those, like, caravan, like the little thing they carry on their shoulders? I'm sure that's how the book of Hebrews was totally delivered. Um, but it, So therefore, the weight, the emotion, and the burden is not equal to the time that they have to kind of summarize and close out the book, which is how I feel today also. All right, so in review, we have in Hebrews chapter 12, I know it was a couple weeks ago, but one of the things that Lisa talked about were these two places and comparing them in worship. We have Mount, does anyone remember our two mountains? Zion and Sinai. Very good. In Mount Sinai, we see that the worship was very far off. 
It involved trembling. Only Moses really had access. There was this whole kind of concept of like actually don't come, not to come. There was this darkness and kind of this fear and trembling in the law with such focus. But then he makes this comparison to us being able to worship at Mount Zion. And the theme of Mount Zion is come, giving confidence to all, centered on grace, and figuring that out. I'll give away the fact that Hebrews 13 ends in verse 25 by saying, may grace be with you all. And when we think about and we're reminded that the author, whoever the author of Hebrews was, had such a literary excellence to their writing, I think it's even more important for us to consider the fact that that is the last line of the entire book. And so as we look at Hebrews 13, I want to take that line and I want to be thinking about it with every single solitary thing that we encounter. May grace be with you all. And that really summarizes this new mountain, this new metaphorical mountain of Zion, and but real place, that, an opportunity that we have to worship. We are under a new covenant, and because of Jesus, we are not people who no longer offer sacrifices, but we are people who offer sacrifices, pleasing ones. We are people who offer sacrifices now by different means and with different attitudes. And so I think sometimes when we look at the Old Covenant and we look at everything we've talked about that went into this sacrificial system, the burden, the forethought, the grossness, we think, oh, praise God, I'm not involved in that. And one of the things that the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us is actually now at, when we worship out Mount Zion under the New Covenant, we actually have an opportunity to offer pleasing sacrifices. We have a call to offer pleasing sacrifices, and this is what they look like. So verse 1 is setting us up here. We're talking about now, this is an introduction, right? So this is how, if you have been like, wow, I don't even know what we've been doing in the book of Hebrews, angels, fabulous, sacrifices, temples, what the heck, I don't know. This is the part you want to pay attention to because this is the doer part, okay? <laughs> so this is how, this is what we've been working up to. Chapter 13 is going to talk about this is how we offer our acceptable worship, our pleasing sacrifices. This is huge for our engagement, for our brains to be wrapping around what he's about to say. We should be on the edge of our seats after reading these last 12 chapters and thinking, oh my goodness, you're right, Jesus is better than the angels. He is a better sacrifice. He does offer a better opportunity for worship. This is us on the edge of our seats saying, okay, now what, Lord, what? What do you want from us? And verse 1 starts off and says, love for the brethren must continue. So what we're going to talk about today are three different aspects of what we bring in our sacrifices, all underneath the category of service. How's my computer doing back there, Lauren? My, um, here's a fascinating Apple fact. So I have one jack, I don't actually know what it's called, I'm making up that word, um, hole, one hole into my computer. And um, that's where the adapter goes for the PowerPoint, and it's also where the power cord goes. So I assumed that the jack, when you attach it to the PowerPoint, would also charge it, but it doesn't. So we're having to switch back and forth. So pr hopefully it has enough power to last us throughout here. 
Who made that? I don't know. Okay. So we're going to go through here and we're going to look at a couple different categories of our service. And there will be a slide coming up, but I'm going to continue here, of what we offer in our pleasing sacrifices. Again, so this is what we bring, all under the category of service. First is our love. Go to the next slide, Lauren. Yep. Second, we're going to talk about what we bring in our church duties. And third, we're going to talk about what we bring in our prayer duties. These are the three categories that he summarizes here in terms of what we bring. And I want to give you a review. I think we already know this, but I want this to be on the tip of your minds as we talk today. The pressure was on to the recipients of this letter. They were experiencing rejection in the temple from the, their fellow Jews who were still under the law. They were experiencing rejection in their trade. They were experiencing so much persecution and pressure to revert back to that system, to do what is easy, to be part of their families, to be part of their cultures. And what do we do when the pressure is on oftentimes in our lives? Well, I've seen it in myself, and I've seen it in many of you, and I've seen it in many people. We draw back. We isolate, and we keep everything for ourselves. So we draw back from love duties when the pressure is on. That's when hoarding happens, stockpiling. Someone needs a meal and you're sitting there thinking ration-wise, like, well, I gotta feed my family, so I don't know how I'm gonna feed my family and I gotta feed their family. This concept of self-preservation arises to the surface, which is really just kind of selfishness, right? Trees and flowers do it, by the way. When a tree is not bearing fruit, it's because something's wrong in the tree, right? And so the tree is using all of its energy to preserve its life, and it can't bear fruit at that time. So if you think about it, in some ways, this is something that is like ingrained actually into the very nature of trees, flowers, and humans. Yet at the same time, the author of Hebrews is telling us to not give in to that. Do not draw back. Do not go back not only to that Mount Sinai, but do not draw back from the people. But the love of the brethren must continue. And so in the midst of this pressure, in the midst of this natural desire to isolate, to be able to self-preserve, do not draw back. And I think... Um, I think maybe for us, sometimes this looks differently. I think a lot of times um, we have pressures in our life that can be maybe created by hard marriages, children who are being hard to parent, jobs that are challenging, health issues, schedules that are overwhelming, nap times that our children need, bedtimes that our children need. And um, I think as a counselor and as someone who has a shepherd's heart, I have a very special place in my, like, passion, I guess, for people and for the women of Village Church of Bartlett um, to look at these next couple of verses very carefully. Because I think lots of times we may not be having the persecution from the temple, we may not be having the pressures from the market, but we have pressures in our own life that maybe look very different than the pressures that the Hebrews were experiencing, but they cause the same reaction of isolation and drawing into ourselves and hoarding our goods and only caring for ourselves 
and centering our lives around things that the Lord does not value. Um, I hear a lot of people come up with excuses, and I would call them arbitrary thresholds or boundaries, right, that people create. I know I've done it in my own life. I see it all the time. And this concept of boundaries, right? Like, so I'm a counselor, so I should love the concept of boundaries, and I do when I think it's done right. But a lot of times, especially in the Christian world, I see people create boundaries that are actually like cages, and they keep themselves from loving other people really well. And, oh, sorry, my child has to go down for a nap, so I can't go and serve that person. Oh, I'm so sorry. Actually, I have a doctor's appointment seven hours before that. You don't say that part out loud. Um, and so I can't go and do that. Oh, sorry, I need to do this. Or sorry, but really? And now there is validity to all those things, so hear me say that. But increasingly, my spirit gets very, I don't even know what word to say, distressed. And when I see a theme happening in the lives of the women of Village Church, when it's something that is culturally acceptable to set boundaries and even sometimes very good and necessary to learn becomes an excuse to just propagate our selfish agenda. And when boundaries become cages and walls that protect us and prohibit us from loving other people in a way that is a sacrifice, in a way that is radical, in a way that is loving as worship, there is something that we have to look at in our hearts and in our lives of what is going on. Our boundaries, um, I think, often cloak our personal preferences. I think oftentimes they're actually created a lot of times from fear, and they oftentimes are fueled by what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and making an easy life instead of a radical life and making an easy life instead of one that is dedicated to radically sacrificing for other people, even if it's at the expense of ourselves. So we love convenience, and I am right there with everyone. My phone has not been working for two weeks, and I've been tempted to chuck it at the wall more times than I'd like to admit. We love convenience. We like things to work for us. We like things to work into our schedule. We like to be in control, and we like to manage all these different things. <clears throat> but we're about to, to step further into this chapter and see what these love duties are that we are called to have. And my hope for you is that you do not take the spotlight and put it on yourself and the challenges that you have, the things that maybe create these necessary feeling, maybe necessary boundaries in your life, but you take the spotlight and you put it on the opportunities that you have, even in the challenges that you have. You'll see many different people who have illnesses or learning deficiencies or whatever it may be, all these challenges that they have, and where they put the spotlight in that makes all the difference in how they love the people around them. You can keep the spotlight on yourself, or you can be still in that same situation and turn the spotlight onto the other people around you, whether it's at the doctor's office or your therapist's or your neighbors, or whatever it may be, or your children, or figuring out how with your children you love people, or figuring out how maybe if they actually take their nap two hours later, it's actually all going to be okay and figuring what this looks like. But whenever you hear yourself say you cannot love someone, please consider that as a red flag. Thinking, and here's the deal, we can't do everything, and I understand that also. 
And so some people in this room, they stretch themselves too thin. But this is not for you. This is for you to be able to look at the opposite in the middle of the situation. And when you feel like you can't do something and you're feeling yourself putting a boundary up and you're feeling like, ooh, I'm feeling a little isolated. I'm feeling a little caged in and a little walled for you to consider how you can look at the opportunities that arise because of your unique pressures, because of these situations and these illnesses or this hard marriage or these children that need things or, you know, the hard job or your schedule or whatever it may be and be able to see how those pressures create unique opportunities for you to be able to love in those situations. Boundaries are to equip us to serve and grow. Boundaries are not for anything else. They are to equip us to love other people well, to fortify us, to strengthen us, so that we can then go out and sacrifice and grow other people. And I think a lot of times we'd find that if we were to care for ourselves in the morning for a half an hour and be in God's word, that that would be a lot of what we need to be able to be fortified and to be able to be strengthened to continue on in service and in sacrifice, as we're going to talk about from here on out. So this is what we bring. This is what we're called to bring. We're going to go into the love duties. You can go to the next slide. These are them. Verses 1 through 6 begin to outline what it is to have this acceptable service. Verse 1 says, love for the brethren must continue. This is this concept of brotherly love, sisterly love, love for those in the family of God. The word continue has been a theme throughout the book of Hebrews. Many times we've been told to continually do this or that. This is part of the author's heart. You're doing these things, and I know the pressures are going against you, but continue Verse 2 says, stop neglecting hospitality to strangers. For by it some have received angels as guests without realizing it. Number two is stranger love. He's telling them to stop neglecting it. So that's something they've already begun to do. In the midst of their pressures and being overwhelmed, they've already stopped caring for strangers in a way that they used to. This is referencing back to Abraham in Genesis 18, right? When Abraham is sitting, it says he's sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and up come these strangers. And what does Abraham do? All right, let's do this. And he throws a huge party, and he goes over the top, welcoming them into his camp and celebrating who they are and really making a huge fuss of it. I think the point of what the author is talking about here is that we cannot limit our affections. Because, I mean, when I'm so ridiculously overwhelmed with my life, I will tell you I become so task-oriented. And the last thing that I feel like I'm doing is looking at anyone else except for the goal of what needs to happen. And when the pressures of life get in on us, that is what happens. So it's like, okay. I'm, I'm going to look at the goal, and then I'm going to look at these certain people that I have to love, right? And I'm going to try to love them well. But I'm sorry, everyone outside of that, you're just going to have to wait. So it's, if you're at the grocery store, like I see such a marked difference in myself when I'm at the grocery store when I'm so overwhelmed and when I'm not. Somehow, magically, when I'm not overwhelmed, the Lord sends all these people for me to talk to and help. Like, oh, can I help you get that cereal box down? Or like, oh, I see you're trying to get that. Let me get that so it doesn't fall on your head. 
what I actually think goes on is that when I'm so target focused, I miss all of those opportunities. I don't love strangers as well. I don't think about them because I'm thinking about what I need to accomplish and what I need to get done. And yet at the same time, I think so many times, and I will say when I had little kids and I would be shopping in the grocery store, which is probably my second least favorite thing to do with small children. Um, I felt like all the time the Lord would put like a lady in a wheelchair trying to reach a box by standing up and I'd be like, Lord, do you see that? I can, I'm, I'm actually like, see this wrangling I'm attempting right here? This is taking all my, and it would just be like a big joke. And um, when I was pregnant, so <laughs> I've had awful pregnancies um, and I, there, I'm not going to lie, there's many, I'm getting like, emotional about this, but there's many times when I'd be so sick in the grocery store, I would lay down on the floor because it was cold, <laughs> and it would like try to get me through to the bathroom, right, to throw up, not on the cereal. And um, I, so, I, but I'd try to make it look like I was looking for something underneath, you know, like, oh, maybe I dropped something underneath this aisle. I should look under there. Oh my gosh, please, just don't let me throw up all over this aisle. And I would get, and I remember so many times at that very moment, someone come down the aisle, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm totally fine, I'm just looking for this dust bunny under here, but I got it. So Target's much cleaner now. And I feel like there'd be people for me to love that were strangers, and I'd be like, Lord, I, do, I don't have anything else to give to the stranger. I, if I vomit on them, this is not going to be funny. And I'd feel like so many times, Lord, be like, but do it anyways. And those are opportunities, I think, which is kind of the whole concept of hospitality, when, when I chose to show genuine love to people who I didn't know and I didn't lim limit my affection, I, th I don't know how they felt. I didn't interview them afterwards. But I reaped the benefits of stepping outside of myself and sacrificing my physical limitations and my emotional limitations for people at that moment. So the stranger love, again, is not limiting our affections and showing but continuing and showing genuine love through our hospitality. And that can happen in our homes, that can happen in our neighborhoods, that can happen in our yards, in our car, <coughs> at the grocery store, at Costco, and pretty much anywhere else, at your children's school, at your job. Hospitality is not limited to your guest bedroom. It is everywhere we go. The third one is suffering love. Um, here, I'll go ahead and read the verse. It says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And remember those who are being mistreated since you yourselves are members in the same body. This one is hard. And I will say from here on out for the next couple ones, I feel like everyone he's building on, he's like, so step up your game. Okay, so you can love your brothers. Continue in that. Yep, continue. Hey, and by the way, like, stop neglecting, and now we're going to amp this up. This is not just the brothers and the people who come to you, but our love is to actually pursue and remember. The word remember here in the Greek is not only to call to mind, but it's to take action. And so this is not just like, hey, pray for them sometimes, okay, and just, like, keep them in your mind. No, this is remembering that, takes, that calls people to action. This is a reminder that this love, this brotherly love that we're building from in that first sentence, it is a forbearing love. It is an empathetic love. As a counselor, 
you would probably guess that like one of my favorite words is empathy. It's also one of the greatest challenges, I think, for someone who works with people all the time, is to be with people. To not look at their situation and assume that you know what's going on, but to get into the situation from their perspective. There's very difference. When we look at a situation and we look at it from the outside and we try to guess what's going on with Suze and we try to give her um, chewy sweet tarts because, no, actually, that'd be empathy. I'd be empathy. I'd be empathy. Yeah. <laughs> we try to give her whatever she needs as she's carrying this baby or whatever challenges she's struggling with, and we just try to guess. We don't have the same effect than if we get inside of her mind and arise to what she's actually experiencing and assess needs from that point. So if I were to assess her needs, I would know that she needs those chewy sweet tarts that she brought to the favorite things party because that sustains her. <laughs> but empathy is to be with someone. And when we are no, when we are with someone, when we walk something with someone, we can more appropriately know how to help and we can become a tangible source of help in that action-oriented part of this word, remember. There's a couple ways that I think that we are called to do this. One is, um, I think that we have brothers and sisters all over the world that we very quickly do not remember who are being persecuted and pressured for their faith. I had the opportunity when I was a junior in high school to write a like 25-page research paper on Christian persecution in the world, which would have been really long ago now, and I won't do the math because it would make me cry. Um, and I came in contact at that time with an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, who I know many of you are familiar with. And the Voice of the Martyrs is an organization who seeks to bear with brothers and sisters who are being imprisoned and mistreated all around the world. And so I've had the opportunity to continue to follow them, whether it's their magazine or their Facebook, just to be in prayer for these people and to continue to remember and to take any kind of action I can. But that is still, and so I would encourage everyone to pursue that and to be mindful of what people all over the world are risking for their faith but at the same time, I think that there's a spiritual, spiritual correlation and reality that we can draw in this verse to the people who are very much in our room, in our church, in our families, and in our neighborhoods. And that is those who are spiritually imprisoned all around us. Everyone in this room knows someone who is in bondage to something, whether that is gambling, drugs, alcohol, pornography, sexual addictions, eating. We have so many people who live their lives imprisoned around us. And so many times our reaction is to get frustrated with them or to become codependent, helping their problem continue. When our job in this verse is to be compassionate, is to be empathetic, so that we can pray and act differently in their lives to support them. Not with judgment, but remembering them and keeping them burden, their burden on our hearts to pray for them and to love them. And I think that that is a suffering love, and I think that no one really likes suffering very much. And so when we have any degree of suffering or pressure or persecution in our own lives, we, the last thing we kind of want to do is take on more, Right? Oh, I have all this I'm experiencing. Let me bear with you yours also. But the Lord gives more grace. And remember we talked about verse 24. May grace be with you all. Put that back into this one. 
So how do we suffer when we're suffering with those who are suffering? Well, grace. Grace continues to carry us through that, to be able to amp up our love. So we take another step up to married love, right? I'd love to not be sarcastic in that one, but I can't help it a little bit. To be like, okay, and here's the other step to step up our game. Marriage is to be held in high esteem by all. And let the sexual relationship, oh, sorry, and the sexual relationship must remain undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will personally punish. I love that first step right there. The high esteem by all. So those are who are in it and those who are out of it. So whether you're in marriage or you're out of marriage, you fall into the category of all. Being able to look at the marriages around you and holding them in high esteem. Seeing them as sacred, seeing them as something that God has created, and working and encouraging those to grow. And so we know that our church, the church at large, and our community functions better when we can work together in harmony. And so I think a lot of this is really being pro-marriage. I think a lot of times we're like, yay, divorce is bad. But I think a lot of times we're not pro-marriage. Feeding the marriages and supporting the people in them to love and hold it in high esteem. Then it goes on to talk about the sexual relationship and just God's view on how the fact, like, by the way, there's not too many things that God says he will personally punish. I don't know how that all works out, but, like, that is a big, big, big statement right there. I think a lot of this comes back to how we look at that brotherly love and it's building on the stranger love and those who are suffering. And actually, by the way, we need to make sure that we are keeping marriage in high esteem, that we are feeding that, that we are being pro-marriage to both our own marriages and the marriages around us. Number five is money love. So we step up our game again, right? Because we can talk about marriage, but man, talk about people's money, we get to a whole new level. And what does he say? I love this. Let your manner of life be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he himself has promised, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I think if you just read this verse, you're like, what does this all have to do with each other? I don't understand. But it's my favorite because, A, he doesn't say to be free from money. He says, let your manner of life be free from the love of money. (coughs) Where you, like, love something and it controls you. He says, because what is the antidote to that? What is the opposite of the love of money? He gives it to us right there. We've talked a little bit about, yeah, exactly, opposites. How when we're in a struggle, when we're stuck in something, we have to look to doing the opposite, and it's contentment. To be content with what you have, that is the antidote. But what is the antidote rested? Not what you have necessarily. Like, so just be content with your phone that like you want to throw at the wall. Although I probably should be. We're working on it, but like, it, she keeps writing swear words and other unkind words in my text messages because she's dying inside the phone. Um, but what is it like? You, the person of Jesus, is actually what anchors the contentment. He says, because I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so, again, we remember the context of what is going on. 
These people are facing very real loss of their finances and of everything they've worked for in their lives. But he is reminding them that their inheritance is secure in him. So no matter what they face as a loss, he is the God who gives and takes away, and nothing can change the fact that their inheritance is secure. The person of Jesus, if we do like a throwback Wednesday to remember that, like we've talked about how the fact that he is like a better high priest than anything they were experiencing in the temple sacrificial system. The better high priest, the person of Jesus who is the antidote, that's who we are content with. He is with us, this verse says. I will never leave you. And he is for us. I will never forsake you. He will always provide for us. And sometimes that looks very strange. And it does not look like something we can put our hands on and something that we can understand. As a planner, as a reformer, this can be painful for me. But I do find oftentimes that there is a corresponding joy when I do not look for things that I can place my hands on to answer the problems of what I need. As a young mom, I really began to see how like a really good gadget or a really good baby tool could honestly make a big effect in your life. And it became something to be able to see like, um, if there is something in the world that can give you hours of sleep, like I will go sell my plasma in order to get that and I'll faint and it'll be messy. <laughs> because you see that actually sometimes there's things that are tangible in this life that can actually have a huge effect. And so as a young mom, I became very like, oh, well, let's look at this gadget or this wipe or this body wash or this whatever because you began to see, I think it was the first time in my life I began to see that actually things can have an effect on how we live. I don't know how to explain that very well, but it took me that long to be able to see like, you know, I don't know if you ever had like a Pampered Chef spoonula, but I remember the same thing when I was first married. I was like, this is a magical device. You can spoon it, you can scrape the bowls with it, and you began to see how cooking can just be like so much easier, right, with this one tool. And I think as a young mom, when I began to see these things can make such a difference, my dependence and my like joy and my anticipation began to rest on what can these little things do to make my life so much easier. And I think that is exactly a lot of what we're talking about here. So those things can be okay, but a good thing becomes a bad thing, right? When it becomes a controlling thing. And so there are many good things that we make into idols and make into bad things because we let them control us. And that's what we're talking about in money. Money is a great thing. We can do amazing, beautiful things when we honor God in the worship that we're talking about here with our money. But a good thing becomes a bad thing and it becomes a controlling thing. And so here, how do we know when we're free from the love of money, by the way? We give it away. We're generous with it. Verse 6 talks about Savior love. So all these build on each other, and now we have this last part of the section. It says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. People cannot really hurt me. I love the fact that, like, so many, remember we talked at the beginning, like, the author is like, boom, 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 oh, take a shower and do all these different things, right? And, and they don't, like, they don't at first look like they make sense altogether. It looks like these random thoughts. But when we step into that, we begin to see that actually so much of what we're looking at is this so we can confidently say, 
So if we love our brothers, if we love these strangers, if we are suffering with those, if we are holding marriage in high esteem, and if we are free from the love of money, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. People cannot really hurt me. And all of this love that we offer as an act of worship culminates in our ability to serve. This word so, this is a result of all of these love duties, all of these acts of worship, that the Lord is who helps us. He is who sustains our worship. He, he is him who takes away our fear, that there is no fear in there. We know in 1 John 4, 8, that there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. And when we know the love of the Savior, and when we have that Savior love, that perfect love for us drives out our fear, it gives us confidence, it allows us to be content, it allows us to hold marriage in high esteem, it allows us to bear with one another and remember them in those moments, it allows us to entertain the stranger, and it allows us to continue to love our brothers and sisters. So we go to the next section, which we call church duties. We'll read this right here. So our worship is seen in love that is continual, hospitable, remembering, esteeming, freeing, and confident. And we look back at what all of these characteristics are. This is what a sacrificial love looks like. And I think that is a beautiful picture. So when you are considering how it is that you offer your worship, how you offer your sacrifices, this is by and large what it looks like. And those are just the primary words taken from each of those verses. When we go to church duties, we see in verses 7 and 8, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I think one of the things that's, fascinating and what I get to talk about in the next couple of pages is like we literally pulled names out of a hat to, to <laughs> who would teach one and I get to talk all about how you love your leaders um, so the first part of church duties is to one one is to imitate faith this is very clearly also drawing a parallel back to chapter 11 when we talked about all of the hall of faith and all the people who have gone before us it is drawing a parallel back to chapter 12 when we talked about the cloud of witnesses who have run this race and it, now it is saying not only are you going to look back then to imitate the faith and to see how these people loved and persevered, but you are also going to look at the people that God has placed in your life now and watch the people around you that he has risen up to leadership and be able to watch them now. What I love is that the next verse seems like, duly noted, throw that one in there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're about to go into talking about how our second duty is to avoid false doctrines. And I believe that this verse 8 is the hinge between 7 and 9. Because he's saying, yes, imitate the faith of the people around you, the people in leadership, the people who you see have an outcome of their life that is glorifying to me. But continue to remember that they're just people. But Jesus Christ, he's actually your hinge He's actually the person who you ultimately look to to be your leader because he's always the same. 
So people in leadership, they're still sinners. People in leadership, they still will make mistakes. But Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not put anyone on a pedestal. You can imitate them, but look to Jesus Christ. The second church duty is to avoid false doctrines in verses 9 through 12. The, when we look back to verse 8, we see again, actually, so there shouldn't be diverse teachings about the same Jesus. <laughs> if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, there probably shouldn't be like new teachings coming up, right? Because he's actually still been the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we must be careful to avoid false doctrines and new whims that come up. We sh there should not be diverse teachings about the same, right? diverse and same, they're opposite words, right? So there should not be diverse teachings and new things about the same. This is referencing Deuteronomy 18.1. Um, at the end here, well, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. So it says, do not be carried away by various and strange teachings, because it's good for the moral life to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which never spiritually benefited those with concerned with them. We Christians have a sacrifice from which those Jewish priests serving the temple have no right to partake of. For the carcasses of those animals whose blood is offered in the Holy of Holies by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the city. So Jesus too suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem in order that he might cleanse the people through his own blood. And so here, we have a reference to Deuteronomy 18.1 right there in the sacrificial system talking about outside the gate that when the sin offering for the people was offered, is offered in the um, outside of the gate. Here they're talking about food that the priests would offer in the temple and then they would consume. Almost giving them like an extra measure of grace. You can imagine that, right? Like if I eat the sacrifice, I will be super holy versus you who just has to watch the sacrifice happen, right? You can totally imagine where, like, the sinful part of, like, the priests would begin to make up all these extracurricular rules, right, and make themselves holier and holier and the people not able to obtain what that is. And he is reminding us here that grace is what we need to take in, not foods, that our dependence on anything that we eat or do or take in, whether it's in substance or action or thought, has no bearing on changing us as the grace that we take in. The things that we think, the things we do, that we try to earn us a closer standing with the Lord, so whether that's diets or exercise or crystals or angels or clothes or bracelets or whatever it may be that the world comes up with, many of those are okay because remember a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a controlling thing. That can still be a good thing if we just leave it as a good thing. But he's making reference to that and saying, actually, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <coughs> when he's talking about outside the gate, he's referencing the sacrifice out the gate and reminding them that Christ's rejection as a sacrifice also happened in that place, which gives us to number three, identify and bear. That's our third duty. Therefore, or hence, let us go outside the gate bearing his reproach. Because where did it just talk about Jesus being sacrificed? Outside the gate. And he's saying, so go with him out there. Identify with him and bear with him. Verse 14 says, for we have here no lasting city, but we are seeking the city to come. 
Through Christ alone, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God for the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. Our third responsibility is to identify and bear. Going outside the camp is a reference of identifying with who Jesus is, even though it's outside of the temple, outside of this old sacrificial system. We want to be so many times in the gates of the city, comfortable with everyone who we can associate with and making it easy on us. We love to be inside the city gates of acceptance and comfortable. But he is saying that our lips must acknowledge the name of Jesus Christ, and that is a costly action so many times to us, whether it be in our families or with our neighbors or at our job, but it is a valuable action. And so here he begins to give three different ways that we can offer sacrifices. The first one is in that last verse. The sacrifice of praise to God, giving thanks to him. That when you're living your life, you have an opportunity to bring him praise, bring him glory, to be able to say, praise God. I see him there. You acknowledge to the people around you. It's just like a way you talk, and people might think you're crazy, but they'd be like, oh, that's just them. That's just what they say when something good happens. Oh, yeah, I don't even know what they mean by that, but that's what happens, that our lips offer a sacrifice of praise. The next two are things that we have to stop, stop doing. Verse 16 says, and let's stop neglecting to do good works and sharing what we have with the needy. For with such sacrifices, God is highly pleased. So then we get three sacrifices out of that. Sacrifice of a praise to God, sacrifice of doing good works, and a sacrifice of sharing what we have with the needy. And when we think about pleasing God, that's a, one of the places that we look at to start. This whole chapter, again, is on offering pleasing sacrifices. And so that's what, another opportunity that we have to be able to, to offer these. Do those good works. Love on the people. Do the actions. Share what you have. The next one is obey leaders. Again, I promise you the pastor's wife wasn't picked for this for a certain purpose. But it says, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, as, though who must, as those who must give an account. Let them do their job joyfully rather than grievously, for the latter would be to your detriment. Does it ever bother anyone when you hear the verse that's like, um, I'm totally going to misquote it wrong. You should look it up and quote it right. But when it's like, um, husbands love your wives because, you know, when you do so, it's like loving yourself. I'm always like, what? Why can't they just love us? Because that'd be awesome. Like, there's always so, so many times the Bible like makes this whole circle. Like, by the way, do that because that's gonna like come back to you like really well. And sometimes I just want it, like I don't know maybe because I'm the wife I want to be like no just love them, just love them and don't even think about yourself right. But the Bible all the time is making these like circles right like because actually just so you know, as a result of that, it actually goes well for you when you do that. And so I think one of the things that is here is, like, we are to obey our leaders. This isn't blindly. This isn't like, oh, yes, sir, and always just, like, going with what's going on. But it is at the same time a respect and a weight to be able to submit to them. And then he gives us reason why underneath that. For they keep watch over your souls of those who must give an account. And that is a weighty responsibility. 
I often see that weight on my husband's. I see that weight on many of the leaders of Village Church of what it is to have a burden of keeping watch over people's souls. And when he talks about the second aspect of what our job here is to make their job joyful, I think that that is something I would love for everyone to look at and to be able to think, how can I be me? How can I serve them? And how can I make their job joyful instead of with groaning, beating them down, and frustrating them? Which is what the word grievously means. Because he reminds us, because when you do that, it's to your detriment. When you groan and grieve your elders and your pastors, it's for your detriment. And so that goes right into the next verse, which goes into our third category of praying. And so here the author says, please, please keep praying for us. For we are convinced that we have a clear conscience in all matters, because we are determined to conduct ourselves commendably. I urge you all the more to do this so I might be restored to you. And so here the author is speaking of his specific situations, but at the same time, he's also giving us an insight into what all leaders who love Jesus and are really try, truly trying to honor him is that they are trying very hard to do and to honor the Lord and to lead with a clear conscience. That doesn't mean that they're going to do everything right, but it does mean that they're trying. And I think so many leaders, the heart, their heart's cry is, so pray for us. Pray for us that we would know when we are being sinful. Pray for us that we would see when we are falling prey to deception. But we're trying to lead these people with a clear conscience in a way that pleases the Lord. And so the third way that you're able to kind of interact with the leaders, the first way is to obey, second way is to make their job joyfully, and the third is to interact um, with them the most by spending time in prayer for them, encouraging them, telling them that you're praying for them. Leaders oftentimes feel alone. They have a burden to carry. I mean, keeping watch over your soul is not, that's kind of like, what? Like, oh, okay, that's intense. Um, and if you just kind of like keep picturing that, you can make it into like a really strange movie really quickly, right? Like they're keeping watch over everyone's souls, and that's a huge burden. And they have to give an account for them. But that is their love, that is their passion, that is their calling. But that does not mean that they do not need, need our encouragement to know that they are not alone. Um, I think a lot of times when you're a parent to your children, you often wonder if they can ever understand the love that you have for them. Recently, when Elias is disobeying, I've been like, you know, or, or, or he'll be like hurt by me for something or whatever. I've, I have pulled out twice now. I actually carried you in my womb for nine months, and I threw up 20 times a day, so you should probably come and give me a hug right now. Because he has no idea. Like, he has no idea what I went through for him. And I don't want to hang that over his head. But at the same time, like, I do want my children to know, actually, I stay up three hours after you go to bed just so you can have clean socks, right? Like, and they will still never, if I say that sentence to them, they still don't know what that experientially is like for me to love them in all the ways that I do. And that's okay. And I think a lot of times when you're in leadership, I think it's the same way for the people that you love. They don't understand what you are doing 
for them. You don't, they don't understand the sacrifice, the burden, the weight of that glory that leaders give, especially here at the Village Church, where the leaders are filled with absolute passion and love for the people that they are serving. To develop a sermon, to, to agonize, I mean, so, sarcastic comment. I'm trying to decide if I should say it or not. Like, the, you know, like the, the weight that Michael carries, uh, this is the part, sarcastic part, that's coming in a second. Um, the weight that Michael carries of, of teaching and of presenting God's word, I don't think that people understand how much he puts his soul and his heart into that. The sarcastic part is how many hours I spend listening, right? Like, so like, am I on staff or am I not on staff, right? Like, and so like in preparing that, like, Wow, people are like, you don't sit in both services? I'm like, I have already heard the sermon eight times before I get here. I'm, I'm seeing it with him in the back. He missed the joke. No. Um, and so I think so many times, like, and that's not every week by any means, but there are certain times when he understands that what he has to bring is so weighty. He respects it so much that he just in some ways agonizes in a, in a holy way, not in an anxious way, in a way that is just reverent over bringing that to all of you. And so I think a lot of times it's the same way. We don't know, we don't understand, but our job is to develop our burden for our leaders to not just tease them about balding and the fur on their shoes, but to actually like bring and develop a burden for them, of praying for them, to ask them questions about themselves, to pursue, to know them and love them, and bring them coffee. <laughs> so we go into the last part of the book of Hebrews. In verse 20, he says, Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep by virtue of his blood, which validated the eternal covenant, fully equip you with every good thing you need so you can do his will. By constantly working in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now I urge you, brethren, please bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you but briefly. Take note that Timothy, our brother, has been released, with whom, if he comes quickly, I will see you. Please greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. May grace be with you all. <clears throat> so this is the summary. There's a million things that the author could have highlighted here. And these are the things that he chose to focus on. The God of peace. Speaking to a people who are in the midst of persecution and pressure and living a shaky life, there's nothing more than we want to be reminded of that God is our source of peace. He doesn't make our situations always right. He doesn't make them always peaceful. But he himself is in the midst and is a God of peace. He wants them to be reminded that this eternal covenant, this whole thing we've been talking about, that Jesus is better than the new covenant, covenant that it is eternal and it has been validated. He wants them to know that they are fully equipped to be grounded in every good thing. And why is that? So you can do his will by constantly working in us what is pleasing to him. Because we have a better high priest 
The book sketches our theology of how we carry out our faith, and it ends with this highlight. We have all these better things. And why do we have all these better things? So we can do his will. Because he's going to be constantly working in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ so that he gets the glory. And then he ends with this resounding amen with a giant exclamation point, which means let it be done. But he doesn't stop there. He asks us to remember all these things that he's written to us and to bear with them. He's telling them, okay, just because I gave you all this information, just because I told you that Jesus is better than these angels and all these different things, like this is not going to be a magical transformation just because you read all these words. This is an exhortation for you to work at it. This is like an exercise plan. I've had plenty of people give me exercise plans, and when I've never used them, they've never worked, which is the only thing I've ever done with them at this point. This is the assessment. This is the plan. But it has to be worked on. Bear with this word of exhortation. 24, it shows us he's speaking this hospitality that he has in his heart. Everything he's been talking about is not just talk, but this brotherly love as he talks about Timothy, as he talks about greeting them, and he sends all these greetings here. These are not just things he's been saying, but these are things that are in his heart of hospitality and brotherly love. 25 is a clear, concise, focused closing. This is what the whole book hinges on. Grace. This grace, this is what is better. This is the better way. This way of grace is better than angels and Moses. It's better than the high priest you've known and you've gotten a better high priest. It's better than the promise you've known, than the hope you've known, than the old covenant that you've known, the tabernacle, the system of worship and these sacrifices because you've been given all new versions of these things. And these things talked about in Hebrews 13, these are our pleasing sacrifices to love, to be a part of the body of Christ. And our acceptable worship lands the plane on grace. And so that's where we land our plane. On this free, unearned, undeserved favor of God that grounds us. And if grace is able to be with us all, I need to point out that there's an opportunity that it might not be with us all. Because we're not going to give something to someone and tell, them, tell us that hope that it can be with us all if there's a possibility that it could also not be with us. We have an opportunity to live out our lives as though we have to earn things, work for things, be deserving of things. But the benediction and the blessing here is to remind us that actually... All these things that are better, they hinge on grace. And it has nothing to do with us. But it is free, unearned, undeserved favor of God, grounding us for what comes. <laughs>